0: Welcome to episode 3 of the Peer Review, the Bosch Young Investigator's Guide to Science and Beyond. Today's host is Aaron Giles. Today's episode features Associate Professor Richard Callaghan. He was invited to give the Bosch Institute's Distinguished Lecture at the University of Sydney. A biochemist and lab leader from ANU, he spends his time investigating the dynamic biology of the cell membrane with particular focus on membrane properties in instances of disease and dysfunction. In addition to his works, he's also had a fascinating academic journey with opportunities arising in Canada, the UK, and then back here. Professor Callahan stopped in to chat about his research, career, and tips for young investigators. Pleasure to have you here. Perhaps we could begin with a bit of a challenge. As a young investigator, we're constantly encouraged to hone our skills of rapid communication with emphasis on trying to pitch our works to a broader audience. I wonder if we could ask you to give us your elevator pitch for the direction that you and your team are working towards in your laboratory.
1: Okay, so the big uh, unifying um, element of our work is um, why drug therapy in disease stops working. We've got lots of drugs available uh, for various diseases, and our particular focus is cancer and chemotherapy, which is taking drugs. works in some cases, works for a while in other cases, and then it stops working. And the reason for that is that the cancer cells adapt to having these nasty drugs around them. They start building all sorts of processes of defence against those drugs, and then the patient ultimately is is left without anything to fight the tumours. So we're trying to understand how those cells adapt what types of processes and defences they build up against the drugs. Obviously, if you understand those processes, then you can do something about it. And we'd love to then eventually design new strategies or new drugs that can combat those defence mechanisms or, or circumvent them. So bypass them, if you like. So, and And as I said, it's within a cancer context... But the same stuff applies to resistance against antibiotics, which is becoming an increasingly uh, discussed thing in society, Uh, tuberculosis and many, many diseases. Resistance is an inherent part of it.
0: The mechanisms that drive multidrug resistance appear to be quite diverse. How did you arrive at this general research direction?
1: Well, I had a a rather checkered beginning because if I... If I may, I'll go all the way back to high school. I loved maths. I loved physics. Chemistry was okay. I remember we're talking about the 1970s and 80s here. And biology, I always thought, that's a bit of a soft option that I'm not going to do biology. not interested in biology. And so I went to Melbourne Uni and I started a science degree. And that was absolutely everything. And you just sort of... As as the years wore on, you just got more and more specialised. So I had to make up units, and I put some biology in there, and I really started to enjoy it. And In my maths classes, I never saw a number again. I just saw words and texts. I thought, this isn't the maths I grew up with. And so biology, uh, it was almost serendipitous that I, I fell into it. And the thing that really attracted me about it was back in those days we used to do really good practical classes. And seeing the stuff, you know, the boring old lectures that you learnt about applied in whatever system it was just made it cemented in your head and it looked exciting. And, that, and it was those practical classes that got me into biology. Um, I was always interested in how drugs work and at the end of the three years of undergraduate I picked a, a project on drug action in, in disease. Again, that was an interest. It was in hepatitis and, and chronic liver injury. And, and I studied how metabolism in those, in those diseases was, again, resistant, if you like. So that's been the common theme for me. And then at the end of my PhD, like a lot of other PhD students, I'm probably a bit battle-worn the topic started to lose a bit of its sheen. And I was just in the library looking at journal articles and deciding what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to go overseas. And back in the late 80s, that was what everyone did. You you did your PhD and then you went overseas. And I love travelling, so I said, yeah, fantastic. And I looked for positions that were advertised overseas and and I saw this uh, article about resistance in cancer, and, and it was put in, it was, I'll have to admit, it's a Scientific American article. So that day I just got a little bit tired of reading the highbrow stuff and, and went to Scientific American. And it was just written in a really, um, in a manner that, that caught me. It, it discussed this patient and the problems they'd had going through their treatment. And so it was, again, I fell into it. I've, I've sort of fallen into a lot of things over the years. I worked on this one particular protein that that gives cancer cells the property of resistance. And it was a protein that everybody around the world was working on at the time. As we started to understand how cancer cells work, other proteins popped up. And then all of a sudden my favourite protein wasn't the most interesting protein to work on. So I started looking at other things. we're, we're promiscuous, I suppose, in that regard. And, and that's the beauty of it. I, I'm, I'm an academic at a university, and so I follow uh, my interests. And they change over time, and they meander in places that you didn't predict. I do a lot of um, research also on metabolism. I teach metabolism, and that frightens medical students and biology students like no other subject. And I never thought I'd have any research projects in it. And eventually my other stuff meandered that way. So there's been been a lot of meandering going on in my career to take me to this place.
0: brought to you by the Bosch Young Investigators and like everything in science, it can't happen without support. If you'd like to contribute to the peer review, contact us on the details provided at the end of the podcast. We're back with our host Aaron Giles and Professor Richard Callaghan. So after finishing your PhD down in Melbourne, we went off to Canada How'd you go about getting this gig?
1: I back in those days, as I said, I was in the library looking at journals, and and the back pages of the journals were the classifieds, and I just looked around at various positions, and and you applied. We used letters, we faxed things, and we waited several months to hear back from from people, and I got I got really lucky. I had one position I could have taken in London. Another one in Baltimore at the Johns Hopkins and this one at McMaster in in Hamilton and I took the less prestigious university out of it although McMaster to be fair is a uh, has got has done some amazing things over the years and in terms of how it teaches its students it was the first uh, place that did problem based learning and so on so it was very innovative in that in that way but the project just interested me more than the prestigious university ones. And so, again, I just followed my my heart, my interests in research. Right, so after Hamilton, where to after that? I spent one year at Hamilton and um, that position suddenly came to an end and (laughs) my wife was about seven months pregnant at the time and we couldn't come back to Australia. We couldn't go... She's Welsh. We couldn't go to the UK so I had to find another position quick as a wink, and I got very lucky and landed a job at um, a postdoc job in at Toronto with Jack Reed, and who was fam- famous for a lot of reasons, Jack. But one of them was they um, cloned the gene for cystic fibrosis. So it was just after that, so it was buzzing around there. So I stayed two years with Jack, and that contract ended, and, and then went to the UK to postdoc in Oxford.
0: Okay, so was your work in Oxford of a similar nature?
1: Yeah, it was still uh, the multi-drug resistance. With Jack, I also worked on cystic fibrosis. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a genetic disorder, but again, it's moving things in and out of cells, which is the the, the real expertise I've I've built up. And uh, although completely different disease, but the same principles uh, applied. And it was in Oxford that I really focused heavily on on the cancer aspect, and and that's been a a strength ever since. So following Oxford, you
0: returned to Australia. Was this a professional decision, or were you just missing the Aussie weather?
1: A lot of people said to me when I was in the UK, why did you come over here? The weather's crap. I said, well, I'm not stupid. I didn't come over to the UK for the weather. No-one does that. No-one in their right mind would do that. Look, I, I... Originally, I I remember saying to my wife, two years, that's all I'm staying in this dump. It's cold, it's wet, and you can't get good food. And I stayed 19 years. And (laughs) and then we thought we were going to stay in Oxford. And um, I came back for a sabbatical at uh, UTS and uh, I learnt a new technique from an an old mate of mine. And every weekend, because I was here by myself, I went to Bondi, I went to Manly, the weather was fine. I thought, well, this is really nice over here. The family came over, we all loved it. And so I was giving seminars at lots of universities and then the ANU and UQ said, well, you should come back, you should work for us. And it just planted the, the little seed. And the thing that most lecturers and academics will complain about is they're very undervalued and underappreciated by their respective organisations. And to have universities and, and departments tell me how much they wanted me to come there was an ego boost that you suddenly felt, oh, I am valuable. And, uh, and that just uh, lit a little spark. And then I talked with the, the family and we said, well the kids have grown up, they're about to move out of home, the mortgage is paid, Uh, we've both got jobs for as long as we want, is this it? And that frightened us enough to say, yeah, it's time for a move. And people often say to me, do you miss Oxford? I I, I miss elements of it desperately. I loved it over there. I love where I am now. And, And that's always been a, a thing wherever I've moved to there's bits of every one of the places that I think are fantastic but if I hadn't have made the move I'd have always wondered what if and coming down here the, the change the upheaval just gave a, gave you a real boost and, and, and energy that may, may have just gone away a little bit over the years so yeah all in all it's been good
0: yeah thanks for that reflection there um you mentioned that you had the question what if and you were also explaining before that you've been interested in science from pretty much childhood could you think of an alternate
1: career path i've often thought about this and uh wow that's a tough one i always wanted to be a train driver when i was a kid and that never happened um teaching potentially uh i, I enjoy Elements of teaching. Um, so, if I had to pick a career, it, it would be that. And what I like at the moment, giving a big lecture to in a lecture hall with a lot of students there. Okay, you you're teaching, but you're not really getting involved with the students. In my laboratory, I'll see my students every day, and we'll try and sort problems out. We'll work through the highs and lows of a research project and you you feel like yeah okay you're making a a little bit of a difference there and the thing you are uh, in in Oxford is it's built on a tutorial system so every week uh, I'd have two or three medical students or, or science students alone two hours and we'd discuss stuff and and that was real teaching you know, we I sorted problems, I got to know them but we you we, we became friends by the end of the year because you you met every week, we had some tea and we, someone would bring in some cake and and we talked about stuff that they were working on, and they were challenging, it was very tough and stimulating at the same time so yeah i that's I've always taught I've never had a research only position, and yeah, I think that might be the way I'd go. This is the
0: Peer Review Podcast. There's a perception that science is an all-consuming lifestyle choice, with researchers pulled in multiple directions on a daily basis. I'd like to ask you how you balance this work with interests outside of academia.
1: Okay, well, I've, in, in terms of the, the question you asked uh, before about what other things might you have done, I would have loved to have played uh, in the half-forward flank for Collingwood. I'd have loved to play professional squash. Uh, I'd have loved to have opened the bowling at the MCG or the SCG. Uh, So I've always been a frustrated sportsman and it's always been important to me. And at the moment, when you get older, you get slower, but your endurance is always good. So I've picked up on Ironman triathlons. And in Canberra, we're blessed with cycle paths and runs. So my weekly commute... Door-to-door is 12 kilometres, but I make my runs 17, 20, 25 kilometres. My bike rides, I might ride around Burley Griffin on the way to work. I might make it into a 30 or 40k. So my commute to work becomes a lot of my training program. I compose letters. I think about research projects. Because if you do it on your own, it becomes a bit zen-like. You have a lot of time. And, and I remember seeing a clip about doing Ironman triathlon and, and an athlete said, Ironman is the single longest conversation you'll ever have with yourself. So I repeat this on a daily basis, in, in much shorter distances, of course, in the morning. But I plan a lot of things. I get my mind sorted out for the day. Sometimes I've even thought oh, I'm going to tear strips off this person. And they're lucky that I did a 15k run that morning because at the end of that time I've calmed down a little bit and I'll just give them a couple of suggestions to go on with. So to me, it complements. There's no competing interests in it and and you can use that time and I I do value that time a lot. It would seem as
0: though you've had a very successful run to date. However, for those interested in pursuing a career in research, we hear that the outlook can be a little bit bleak. Can you give us any quick tips for how to traverse
1: the challenges that await an aspiring scientist? Look, I'm not going to beat around the bush. It is bleak in, in many respects. My, the people in my lab watch me writing grants every year. take about three to four months putting in two or three grants. And I say to them, 90% chance this is going to amount to nothing. So I say, why, why, why in the hell's name would you do it? And I say, the thing that makes me do it is I just really enjoy the lab, doing the research. It interests me. I direct the ship. If I'm bored or not interested in coming to work that day, that's my fault because I direct where the stuff goes. And so in that respect, I'm passionate about it. I love doing it. And that's the career advice I always give people in my group. Only do this career if you really, really have a passion for it. Not a passion but I want to make professor or I want to get a good salary. You can do that in any job. If you're really interested in this, you'll drive it, you'll push it, you'll go that distance, you'll put up with 90% failure rates, the crappy reviews of your articles, the bureaucrats and admin people tearing at your time and so on because you just enjoy it and and that's what I always followed in, in the build-up to becoming a scientist I sort of followed what what I was interested in and if you're not interested in it then get out of it it's there's no point staying in it it's it really is a love uh, a labor of love in in many many ways And I don't think you'll go too far wrong. If you follow your heart in terms of your career, you'll make a success of it. If you're doing it for someone else's reasons or, you know, for for reasons other than what the job involves, then I I can't see how you're going to make a huge success out of it. So it's nothing practical like you must do this, you must do that. It's more philosophical, I think, would be my advice.
0: No, no, thank you very much. We really appreciate the candid response. Just to wrap up, we'd like to ask all our guests about the worst review they've ever had when submitting a paper or grant.
1: I've had all sorts. I've even put some in a journal article recently, but my favourite was, this research is not in the nation's interest. That was in the UK.
0: That's, uh, that's, that's pretty good. Is he yeah. the Prime Minister? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Member I, of Parliament? I know what they were getting at. That wasn't the, the focus, but it was just put so poorly. It's not in the nation's interest. I, I've kept that one up on the wall. <laughs> wow.
0: I'm sure that makes a lot of people feel better about their reviews. Well, thank you very much for stopping by, and we really appreciate you sharing your story and insights. That was The Peer Review. You can get more information about Professor Callahan's work from our website, www.medium.com slash Review. You can also contact us through Twitter, at Pod on Stitcher or SoundCloud.